Well, when the Lord Jesus Christ was here on earth, he preached, didn't he? And he encouraged people to come to him. And you can read, of course, the Gospels, and you can read the accounts of the ministry and the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, how he was continually exhorting people, exhorting sinners to come to believe him, to trust in him. Think of the great promise in Matthew, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. But in John chapter 6 and verse 40, the Lord Jesus Christ had to say some particular words to to those who were gathered around him there. And it was a word of disappointment. In John chapter 6 and verse 40, these are the words that the Lord Jesus Christ said. It's not verse 40. This is what he says there, the verses jumped from me, but he had to say to the people in John chapter 6 that even though he had preached to them, that they wouldn't come. They wouldn't come that they might have life. They wouldn't come and hear what he had to say. It's John chapter 4 and verse 40. He said, search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify of me and you will not come to me that he might have life. What a sad statement by the Lord Jesus Christ. He'd been preaching, he'd been teaching, he'd met so many people, and yet here he comes and he says, but you won't come. You won't come that you might have a life. There were many, it would seem, that were reluctant to come to Christ, reluctant to believe, reluctant to seek God. For some, perhaps it was an element of fear. What would their friends Say, what would the Jews believe? What would the religious leaders do? They could, of course, kick you out of the synagogue. They could excommunicate you. They could excommunicate your family. You'd be outcasts forever. And so people didn't come to the Savior because they had a fear. For others, perhaps they had doubts. Could Jesus really be who he says he is? Could he really be the Messiah? Is he everything that he claims to be? And perhaps they walked away unconvinced, doubting, sceptical, wondering whether Christ was everything that he said he was. Well, perhaps as I come to you this evening, perhaps there's someone a bit like that tonight. You've heard the words of Christ, but you're reluctant to come. Reluctant to believe, reluctant to trust in God, reluctant to seek God's. Perhaps you have fears. You really want to believe, but you're afraid of what others might think. Afraid, perhaps, of the consequences of seeking and trusting in the Saviour. Or perhaps you're someone who has doubts. You doubt whether the claims of the Bible are really true. You're sceptical of Christianity. You're sceptical of Christ. And so you waver and you hesitate and perhaps you have some misgivings. Well, tonight I want to direct your attention just to a verse that we find in Psalm 86. Turn with me to Psalm 86. Psalm 86 and verse 5. David said this, For thou, Lord, art good, and ready to forgive, and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call Upon thee. And my title for our sermon, our gospel sermon this evening, is Encouragements 
to seek God. Encouragements to seek God. And here in this text, David gives us a number of encouragements as to why we should come and why we should seek the Lord. And I want us to look at this verse this evening and just notice these three encouragements that David gives. Encouragements that we can, that as I, as I preach this evening, that if you are still in your sin, if you're still outside of Christ, may encourage you to come and seek the Lord. And the first encouragement we find there in, at the beginning of verse 5, he says, For thou, Lord, art good. This first encouragement that David uses is that the Lord is good. He is a good God. Now you notice what David says there. He doesn't say that the Lord does good. Of course, that's true as well. The Lord is good and doeth good, the psalmist says. But the Lord does good because he is good. He is essentially good, intrinsically good. He's independently good, originally good. He's infinitely good. He's morally good. This is his very being. This is his very part of his very inclination. This is what he is like. You see, the, the goodness of God is not a reflected goodness. He isn't good because of his circumstances. He isn't good because someone's favorable to him and good and kind to him. No, his very nature is good. Now, we have to remember that when we think of goodness, we're talking about the very opposite of harshness and cruelty and severity and mercilessness. Rather, when we think of goodness, especially in relation to the Lord, we're thinking of his loveliness and his, his sweetness and his generosity and his, his bounty. This is the, and this is the nature of God's. You have to also remember that, in, that with God, he has absolute perfection. His nature is a nature of absolute perfection. There's nothing wanting, there's nothing defective in God's character, is there? You cannot add to his nature, you cannot take away from it. And there is a perfection to the goodness of God. It's a perfect goodness. And we could say that there is none who is good above God's. There's none who is good beyond God. He is absolutely good. He's the fountain of goods. Thomas Manson, one of the Puritans, said this, he is good of himself, good in himself, yea, he says, good itself. And the goodness of the Lord flows to all creation, doesn't it? This is what we see every day in our lives. Moment by moment, we are the beneficiaries of the goodness of God. Remember what the Lord Jesus Christ said uh, in back in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 45, he said, He maketh the sun to rise on the evil and on the goods, and sendeth rain on the just and on the unjust. And here is Christ explaining to us that God's general goodness is displayed indiscriminately. Every one of us here is a beneficiary of God's goodness every day. As a child, I used to find that verse slightly confusing. I used to think, how can sending rain demonstrate the goodness of God? You know, our English mindset is, isn't it, that, you know, black, a cloudy, a rainy day illustrates something bad and negative. You know, you watch cartoons and the person who's going around having a bad day has got a raining cloud over the top of their heads. And so I used to be puzzled, how could sending rain display this goodness of God? But of course, you have to remember that those in Israel, in this hot and, 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 and a dry country, that the rain, abundance of rain, speaks of goodness. 
Rain is a precious commodity. Rain speaks of growth and fruitfulness, doesn't it? And harvest, and therefore food and gladness. And this is what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying. This is the goodness of God to to all the people. It's a goodness that extends across all the creation. He tells us that he feeds the fowls of the air. He clothes the grass, doesn't he? He gives the beasts their food, he tells us. And this is all the manifestation of the goodness of God. And yet we can be so blind to it, can't we? So blind to much of this. If only we spent more time observing our own lives and observing the things around us, we would see more and more how God displays his goodness to us. That's why the psalmist says over and over again that those words that we begun our sermon this morning with, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. And that psalm, it goes on, there's this continual re- refrain that's repeated, Oh, that men, he says, would praise the Lord. Why? For his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. And it's all the more remarkable, isn't it, when we think about the goodness of God, this, ex- this extension of his sweetness and his kindness to us. It's all the more remarkable when we consider the truth that, we're, that we, in direct contrast to God, are not good. We're anything but good, aren't we? Remember Psalm 14, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there were any that understand, if there was any that seek God. But what does he say? He says, they've all gone aside. They are all together become filthy. And then he says, there is none that doeth good. No, not one. We could say, here's the most remarkable aspect of the goodness of God. Not only does it extend to all his creation, to the good and to the evil, but James tells us, doesn't he, that every good gift and every perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights. And of course, what is the greatest gift of all? It's the giving of his Son, isn't it? There you see the goodness of God displayed in all its fullness, the giving of Christ. You were thinking of this verse only last week. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. He gave him in goodness. The Lord Jesus Christ came because the Lord is good. And he came to save sinners, didn't he, like you and me, who are anything but good. And so do you see this evening, as David says these words in Psalm 86, this is an encouragement to come to God and seek him and trust in him. He's good. He sent his son to die for you in his goodness. He sent his son to pay the price for your sin in his goodness and in his love and in his sweetness and his kindness. And so now we're invited, aren't we? Taste and see that the Lord is good. Friends, this evening, don't despise the goodness of God. You know, God is not some erratic tyrant, is he? You know, who one minute can seemingly be benevolent and kind. And in the next, he can be furious and and do something completely bizarre and erratic. That's not what God is like. No, he invites you to come and see how good he is. He is good all the time. Let me say to you tonight, sinner, don't turn your back on the goodness that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. 
Let me implore you, like that psalmist says, come and just see how good he is. Turn to him, submit to him, you'll find he's a good God. You know, when I grew up in Woking, this was something that I discovered. Grew up around people of various different religions, but one in particular. And the more you learnt about this particular religion, the more you began to realise that their God is not a good God. To this particular God, the end justified the means. It didn't matter what you did as long as you benefited from it. And God could behave like that to you. You began to realise that the God that these people served, it was a cruel God. It was a harsh God. But that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the one and true and living God. No, David says here, for thou, Lord, art good. That's the first encouragement tonight, if you're still in your sin. God is good. But notice what the second thing here that we notice here. Not only is the Lord a good, but notice, secondly, that the Lord is forgiving. The Lord is forgiving. Notice what he says there. For thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive. You see, now David moves on here in his thinking. He started with what God is like in his character, his nature, but now he moves on to what God can do, what extends, as it were, from his nature and from his goodness. And he says, look, God is forgiving. His goodness is a forgiving goodness. He says here, look, God, is, God can pardon. God can forgive. Now, we just noted that there is none good, no, not one. That we are those who've rebelled against God. We're those who are filthy. We're sinners before God. We've offended him. He is holy and, and he is just and, and he is righteous. He is good. And, and therefore the very thing that we need is forgiveness. That's why we read Psalm 32 earlier. Remember what David said there at the very beginning. Verse 1. Blessed, happy, joyful as it were, is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. You see, if God will not forgive, then we're doomed, aren't we? Then we're condemned. We will face an eternity of his fury rather than an eternity of his goodness. Psalm 130, verse 3 says, If thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? And how true that is. If God were to get out his book, as it were, with the record of our lives, with the details of all the things that we've done, of all our sin and our filth, and all the vileness in our lives, it's true, isn't it? Who would stand? But the psalmist doesn't leave it there in Psalm 130, does he? He says, if thou, Lord, shouldest mark iniquities, O Lord, who shall stand? But he goes on and says, but there is forgiveness with thee. David says the same here in Psalm 86. The Lord is forgiving. And actually, what David says here in Psalm 86 is actually a lot more assertive and much more confident than perhaps we understand when we first look at it. Because he tells us that the Lord is ready to forgive. He's ready to forgive. Actually, this is the only time this word, the Hebrew word, ever appears in all of Scripture. And it's a wonderful word because this word ready here implies being prepared. You know, if I say that I'm going to go on holiday and I say that I'm ready for it, it means I've organised, I've got my bags packed, the cars loaded, I've got my tickets printed and so on. I've everything arranged, I'm ready to go. 
And David says, the Lord is ready to forgive. Everything's prepared. Everything's been arranged. Everything's been organized. So that when the sinner comes to him in repentance, he can be forgiven. He has, as it were, the very tickets of forgiveness ready to give to the person who comes. Now that means that certain things have to be done beforehand, doesn't it? There was preparation that was needed by God. You know, when I'm at home and Joe calls out and says to everyone, tea's ready, and we all come and sit at the table, I don't imagine for a moment that that tea just grew out of the kitchen work surface. Things had to be done, didn't they? There had to be preparation, there had to be things cooked and so on. There was things that that needed to be done before we could sit down and have that meal. And you know, for God to be ready to forgive sinners, there was a preparation that was needed. God needed to send his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. He needed Christ to live a perfect life, a life that was holy and blameless. And then, of course, Christ needed to go to the cross. And Christ needed to die. He needed to suffer in the place of his people. Christ needed to meet, didn't he, all the needs of a just God. He needed to satisfy. He must fulfill the law, satisfy every demand and take the penalty. And Christ had to bear his people's sins. All of this was the preparation. That was what was required to prepare the way so that the Lord could say, he is ready to forgive. And you see, friends, Christ has died so that we may be assured that the Lord is ready to forgive if you come to him. You see, God is not just someone who wants to forgive or is willing to forgive, but he's ready to forgive. There's a great difference, isn't there? You meet people who may be very willing to do something. My children often are willing to help me do something, but they might not have the, the means to actually do it and the wherewithal and the ability And of course, you can have someone who is willing and is also able, but not ready. But not so with the Lord. You see, the Lord is not only willing to forgive you, and he's not only able to forgive you, but he's ready to forgive you. And David knew that in his own experience in that psalm that we read, Psalm 32 and verse 5. He says, look, I acknowledged my sin unto thee and mine iniquity have I not hid. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. Then what does it say? What was his experience? Did the Lord cast him away? Did the Lord say, no, I don't want to know anything about you? No, David says, and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. And friends, David committed some awful sins. But the Lord was willing, the Lord was able, the Lord was ready to forgive. That's the testimony of David and it's the testimony of so many here tonight. We read it, didn't we, of the experience of the woman in Luke chapter 7 that we read. She came before the Lord Jesus Christ. She comes and she falls before him. There's there's repentance in her heart and she washes his feet and anoints his feet. And though her sins were many, they were forgiven. You see, she fell at the Saviour's feet and found forgiveness. And do you see here then tonight in this verse that we're considering, this uh, this encouragement to come. Come and seek God. He's not only good, but he stands, as it were, with his arms wide open to embrace you and, and give you his forgiveness. 
Matthew Henry said this, he is more ready to forgive than we are to repent. He's more ready to forgive than we are to repent. May not, that not be true of someone here tonight. In a sense, be more willing to repent. Come. Because he's willing and ready to forgive you. So then here's the first two encouragements. The Lord is good and the Lord is forgiving. But notice this last encouragement here that David goes on because he says the Lord is merciful. The Lord is merciful. You see, if the first encouragement told us what God is like and the second told us what God can do, then the third tells us what God has in store. Notice what it says there. For the Lord, for thou, Lord, art good and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee. And David's drawing a picture here. By using that word plenteous, the, the picture that he's drawing here is of like a wealthy man, a man with a great storehouse. You remember Joseph in Egypt, he had the, the barns filled with grain, ready for the, the times of dearth and the times when there'd be no rain. And this is the same picture here, a merchant man, as it were, with, with, as it were, gold and silver and precious stones heaped up, a great treasure stored up. And, and the same idea as we think about those things is, is being described about the Lord. The Lord is presented to us as one who has a storehouse, a treasure trove, as it were, that is abundantly overflowing. He's rich. And of course, what is the commodity that God has in great abundance? What is it that his storehouse is full of? Well, it's filled to the brim with mercy. You know, and that word that's translated mercy there, you may have something different in your translation. It's a very deep word. It, it, it encompasses mercy, yes, but it's so much more. It conveys goodness again. It conveys kindness. It conveys love and, and grace and faithfulness. And friends, tonight, this is what the storehouse of God is like. Well, his barns, as it were, are just overflowing with, he has abundant kindness. He's overflowing with love. He has, he's just plenteous in mercy and grace and kindness. You see, friends, tonight, God is no miser. He's no penny pinch, is he? The very opposite, he's liberal, he's willing to bestow his goods. Do you notice what he goes on to say there, David, in this verse? He's plenteous in mercy. Yes, he's got this great storehouse. But does he hoard it? Does he hold on to it? No, he says, unto all them that call upon thee. You see, it doesn't matter what your past may have been. It doesn't matter what sins you may have committed. It doesn't matter that perhaps you've walked past, as it were, these barns and these storehouses before. It doesn't matter one iota to the Lord. The Lord says, look, my storehouses are open for you tonight. Open tonight for all who will call upon the Lord, who will seek the Lord. And so the question tonight is, have you called? Have you sought the Lord? Now, friends, imagine tonight I said to you, no, there's a man who lives in Ripon. He's a billionaire. He's a house full of cash and gold, and silver, and jewellery. This house is full of it. He's got a mansion. It's just down the road. And do you know what you do? All you've got to do is go and knock on his door. And if you knock on his door, he'll welcome you in, and he'll say, look, whatever is in my house, you can have it. You can take the lot if you want. 
If you've got a, a van or a lorry big enough, pull it up. You can take whatever you want. You know, and everything in the house, the paintings, the lot, is worth millions. Now, you might be a little bit dubious at first, mightn't you? You might think, you've got to be kidding me. A billionaire living in Ripon that I haven't heard of? You might think it all sounds too good to be true. Why, now why haven't I heard of this man before? But just imagine you had a friend who went and checked this out and said, you know what, I'm going to see if this is true. And he went and knocked on the door. And overnight, that man became a millionaire. And he took as much as he could and he went and sold it and he found that everything was absolutely true. But wouldn't you be down there like a flash? My friend, he became a millionaire just like that. It was true. I'd hire the biggest lorry. I would take everything I could, bring it down and fill it up. My friends, tonight it's the same with the Lord's. It's the same with him. He's plenteous in mercy. He's good. He's ready to forgive you of every sin. And maybe you are dubious. Maybe it all sounds too good to be true that my sins can be forgiven, that my sins can be blotted out, that God's ready to, to lavish his goodness and his mercy upon me. But you know, there's people here tonight who've knocked on the storehouse and found it to be true. There's people here who found that God is indeed plenteous in mercy. They found that God is good. That he has this abundant love and he's ready to forgive. And so do you see tonight there's a wonderful encouragement here in this verse to come. There's a wonderful encouragement if you're a sinner tonight to seek God and to call upon him. But the question is, have you? David says the Lord is good. He's ready. He's ready to forgive. Ready to forgive you of your every sin. And he wants to dispense this mercy and this love to you. It's a superabundance love. It's, it's a superabounding mercy. If only you will call upon him. Friends, tonight have you done that? For thou, Lord, art good, he says, and ready to forgive and plenteous in mercy unto all them that call upon thee.